Hey, howdy, hello. It is your good friend, your good pal, Josiah. Uh, <laughs> I normally don't do intros for these shows, um, but I wanted to do the one this time because, well, for a few reasons. First off, I never really do an intro. There's never any ads at the start, so I mean, you know, come on. Bear with me as I add something to the start of these episodes. Uh, two, the real main reason is um, today's episode is with Ben Folks, who is an uh, columnist for USA Today and MMA Junkie. So um, it's different than a normal episode, as you'd guess if you subscribe to the show and listen to it every week. And first off, I thank you so much for doing that. Um, normally, the show is about video games, it's about developers, it's about publishers, it's about writers, podcasters who are involved in that industry. Um, but I have other interests too. And uh, still at the core of this episode, it's about um, Ben's experience in sports journalism and with uh, short stories, which he has a few published. Um, I've had Chad Dundas on here before, who is his uh, co-host for the Co-Main Event podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts. It's one of those like immediate listens for me every single week. Um, so a lot of this conversation will focus on mixed martial arts, you know, the UFC, which I fully understand if you're not into that, totally fine. Um, but at the core of it, it is talking about sports journalism, it's talking about issues that may be applicable to what you're doing or your interests. And so I guess what I wanted to at least preface this with was if you think the UFC is stupid or if you think people punching each other for sport is dumb in a cage, absolutely fine. Uh, fully understand that. Um, but I, I do hope that you do listen to this episode, give it a chance and um, get something out of it because Ben is someone who I've read for a long time. He's one of the best sports writers. Uh, well, I know him now, but uh, I've read in the past. Uh, and you know, before I ever talked to him, I've always kind of looked up to him as someone who writes interesting human pieces about these people who maybe you only see bloodied up in a cage or you know, throwing verbal jabs at each other at press conferences. He, he humanizes them in a way that he's not doing news reporting, but he's writing really interesting work for, it's been a lot of different sites, but again, now it's USA Today and MMA Junkie. So uh, he's a really smart guy. Very likely will write a book one day that I will immediately pre-order and read. Um, fantastic editor. And I, I think there's a lot of cool stuff there. And uh, I also want to do this intro to kind of see, you know, I have a lot of cool guests lined up, which I'll talk about in a second, but you know, is there anything outside of games you want me to cover? Because at the core of the show is an interview show with interesting people. And yes, most of that ends up being games because it's the contacts I have. It's the people I know. It's the people I enjoy talking to. And it's what I know best. I don't want to be fully out of my depths. If I start talking about professional wrestling, I first off, I never would. But second, I would have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. I would need... um. Simon Miller on here to explain everything to me and it would just be me trying to appease an audience I don't understand. Uh, so usually I go with stuff I know, but if if there's different conversations you want, if there's different areas, more sports stuff, if you want some of that, uh, please let me know on Twitter. Um, I would super appreciate that or even the comments on a SoundCloud or anything like that. Uh, just so I know what you're looking for um, because that's, you know, I care about that. I want to make sure you're listening to stuff that you want to listen to. Uh, so there's that. And also um, just a quick update on future schedule. Again, Ben Folks will be coming up in just a bit. Uh, down the line, shit's getting crazy. We just had uh, Jake Baldino, who's an awesome dude, good friend of mine, um, talking about YouTube. Uh, next week, if the schedule holds, it should be Dan Reichert from Giant Bomb talking about 
you know, his transition to New York, everything. It's, you know, his entire process of working a giant bomb, going through his anxiety and going from that to being on camera all the time and being at different conferences and panels and kind of being this odd video game celebrity <laughs> that he's become. We're also probably going to talk about Taco Bell and him possibly getting married at Taco Bell. We've been emailing about it back and forth. Um, it's crazy. Uh, Adam Sessler is finally happening. We've been talking about that forever. There's been you know, certain roadblocks we've had to get through, but uh, I'm going to talk to Adam Sessler of Theoryhead, formerly of X-Play and Revision 3 Gaming, about his career, about how crazy it is going from you know being this face of video games on TV to now everything is Twitch and YouTube and everything is crazy in that way. Uh, so we'll definitely cover everything. I've watched him forever, so it's awesome that he's agreed to come on. Um, Simon Miller will be making uh, a return, triumphant return to the podcast. We'll see what he's up to. Formerly a video gamer. He still does some work there, but not full time. He's going to be a professional wrestler now. He's a Patreon. He is the Miller Report. Again, genuinely amazing dude. Really excited to catch up with him. Um, and then Nina Freeman is also on the schedule who is working on Tacoma uh, and had worked on Gone Home in the past. Steve Gaynor was on this podcast before and I've gotten some requests for Nina Freeman. So I reached out to her and um, we're working on something for early May, uh, probably right around my birthday. So that is the upcoming schedule. I'm probably missing other things. Uh, I don't want to reveal it if it's not 100% confirmed. I do have the creative director of Dragon Age on the horizon, um, but Again, that's a little bit down the line. We're waiting a bit for that one. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry I keep asking so much of you. Two last things, and I promise we'll get to the episode. First, if there are any people that you want me to talk to, uh, my Twitter is at Josiah Renauden, or it could, you can always go at the, ten, the 1099 podcast. Let me know. I You'd be shocked at the number of people that if you include them in a tweet and say, I would love if you talk to that person, I'll reach out to that person. They'll be like, sure, I'd love to talk. And that's how a lot of these podcasts start. So you help build these and I need your help to continue to fill out the schedule. Um, Cause I don't want to just go from a pool of people that I know. I want to make sure that I expand that and talk to people that you want to hear me talk to. Um, and last, last thing before we get into this, uh, if you could, you'd mean the world. If you could just get on iTunes right now, search the 1099 podcast, see that it has like there's like 20 reviews or something like that which is awesome and i appreciate it quick give it a quick rating give it a quick review just it could be literally a sentence saying ah oh, this is great just is so sexy so handsome uh does he groom his beard he probably does answers yes uh just leave a rating it really helps people find the podcast and uh the response to the podcast has been insane lately and awesome um and it would be awesome if that could translate to like a couple reviews it'd be really cool i'd really appreciate it uh that's it. I don't want to keep rambling on. Man, if I ever have ads, you guys are going to hate me because I'm going to ramble while I talk about ads. But no ads on the horizon. I, I don't make any money off of this. I actually spend more than I make. Yeah, that, that should just about cover it. I really hope you enjoy this full podcast uh, with the wonderful and amazing columnist Ben Folks.
Well, hello and welcome to episode 88 of the 1099 for the week of April 17th, 2017. I am your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is a columnist for MMA Junkie USA Today and a co-host for the co-main event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast, Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, we talked about this off-air, but I had Chad Dundas on here a few weeks back, and I felt like it was only fair to have the other half of the CME actually represented on the podcast he said some things about you, about some some lifestyle pieces, about some pile of trash. I think it was back or neck. So it, it, this is like your chance to punch back at sporadic moments if you feel the need to. I have a list, a list of grievances here <laughs> that I have brought I, with me. I, I, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for like an answer. And then at the very end, just this weird cutaway to and this about his last book. Do you know I edited this part out? This almost made it into the book. Like I'm waiting for all these juicy details and to start a few. I basically wrote the book. I basically did. <laughs> I, I'm not going to say I expected that, but I, I kind of expected that. Uh, before we do dig into your actual MMA writing or podcasting, I mean, you've done some short stories and fiction in the past. You wrote You'll Apologize If You Have To for Crazy Horse Literary Magazine, and you've been published in various other places. You do have a master's in creative writing. So was that always the dream for you? Like, write some short stories, get a novel published, kick your feet up, retire atop mounds of hot cash? Like, was the idea to get that master's and then just write stories and novels or was it always to get into some form of journalism later on? You know, I would be lying if I acted like I had a plan. <laughs> uh, I didn't, I, like a lot of writers I know, I was not really capable of looking too far down the road. Maybe because if you do look too far down the road, especially if you want to do fiction, you see that it gets kind of dark and scary down there and you're, you know, you probably don't pursue an MFA in creative writing if you're really planning out your future really well. Um, so yeah, I don't know really what the plan was, just that that seemed to be one of the only things I was good at. Um, and I was lucky enough to be able to combine an interest in, in writing and an interest in mixed martial arts and combat sports and somehow cobble together a career out of it. I still don't know how it happened. Do you try to avoid writing about MMA or fighting in your fiction work and in your short stories since that takes up so much of your brain space on a daily basis or at this point, is there an advantage of that where you know the industry so well, you've talked to so many fighters, you've been inside their heads, that it's actually the best route to create ideas and stories with? Yeah, I mean, at times in the past, I have just thought, like, man, maybe I'd be better off, like, just separating, like, putting a firewall between my MMA writing for work and my fiction writing for pleasure, kind of. But uh, realistically, I have a lot of good fodder that comes through, through following fighters and interviewing fighters and hearing all these stories. Um, it's often a good like kind of jumping off point. And also, you know, realistically, when you're looking to get fiction places, you know, you see a lot of fiction, a lot of literary fiction out there about like hey, a college English professor who finds himself in this dilemma. And it's like, yeah, there's only so many of those you can read and have somebody who can come along and tell you like, OK, here's this world of professional cage fighting. That's something a little different that tends to get people's attention. So like strategically, it's a little better for me to write about MMA sometimes and you know, it, often it's just kind of a, a jumping off point for something else because if you're writing sports fiction, nobody's going to care too much about the actual sports since you made it up. It's not like a real sporting event that actually happened. Do you Have you ever gotten so close to maybe almost mimicking a real fighter's life or situations in your short story they had to step back and be like, oh, God damn it, I just wrote the story of Fabricio Verdum or I just did you know, TJ Dillashaw, I need to like take a step back. Like, How difficult is it to actually think up new fighter stories that haven't already been out there in the UFC and people you've talked to? You know, it's not really the the story itself. I will often intentionally kind of start with uh, characters, like think of a fighter you know, um, and then 
put him into a situation that his natural character would would get him into or that would be an interesting kind of conflict for him um and it's easier for me to think about you know i think about them and and have a certain fighter in mind and then the the story itself will kind of go somewhere else because you know you're it's not too difficult to keep from writing about their actual lives and the way they unfold um and usually it seems like by the end of it you know you start in one place and you end somewhere completely different than you thought you were going to most of the time at least for me and so it's not as recognizable to other people because I've worried about that in the past. Like if I'm thinking of Chael Sonnen here, are people going to read it and be like, you just wrote a, you, a fictionalized version of Chael Sonnen's life. Um, and they, they don't really tend to see that because it just changes so much. Um, but it's a good place to start with uh, to a person to have in mind to think of. I asked Chad about this a lot when it came to uh, champion of the world and his next book that he's working on. It's kind of the process of it because I do have, I have a creative writing degree and I kind of, you know, didn't have the most solid plan, but one of those plans was eventually I should probably write a book. So what's the actual process of getting your stories published? I mean, do you have do you have an idea, pitch the idea, and then write kind of like a freelancer contract in that way? Or do you put the work in, write it, and then say, here's my badass story, please buy this? You, you kind of always have to have the full thing. I mean, maybe if you're some big-time fiction writer, you can tell them, like, hey, I plan to write an, a novel or a story about this, and people will be like, great, we'll, we'll buy it. Um, but... For short stories, you know, you kind of just, you write it, you write a few more drafts, you get some people to read it, you write a few more drafts, and then you just kind of start sending it out. And it takes so long, usually, for to hear back. It's a real delayed gratification kind of thing. It's like, kind of by the time you forget that you sent out a story, um, yeah. you'll start getting notices back. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's a thing where you usually think, like, okay, here, I'm going to write a story about this, and by the time you're done, at least for me, I've written a completely different kind of story, and you get eventually you get to a point where you just kind of want to get it away from you, and that's when you just send it out and try to forget about it. Do they do a lot of heavy editing to short stories like that? I, I freelanced for years for um, a CBS site called GameSpot, and I would send, like, product reviews to them, and they, of course, you know, there's the give and take where they're like, all right, how about we take it in this direction, or maybe they're just going for grammar, certain phrasing, and things like that. Do you get a lot of edits on a short story when you turn that in? No, not when it gets accepted for publication. I mean, you get edits. I have like a writing group. Chad and I are both in a, a writing group here in Missoula that um, you know we kind of have with our friends, where we send our stuff around and meet together and talk about it, and they'll give you their thoughts. But once somebody accepts it, they usually accept it as is. Maybe they'll change a one little small thing, or if they, they want a typo or something like that. Um, and I've heard about with other writers where somebody will say, "Hey, we really like this story. If you could change one thing, or if you could." In, insert one thing in there um but usually it's just kind of either they want it the way it is or they don't gotcha that makes sense and you've covered mma since the early days and at this point i mean you're writing about fighters storylines gyms uh different events from home without actually going to these crazy you know events in person with the availability of fight pass and access to so much info online do you think you ever actually need to go to a live ufc event to do your job there's some journalists out there um who have been barred from UFC events, their press credentials stripped. And, like, you, of course, that's not something you want, and it would suck if it happened to you. But has sports journalism as a whole opened up to more people where you don't need to travel? You don't actually need to be on the scene because you're getting the info just as fast online. Yeah. You know, the thing that is good about going to the events is not like that you see stuff that you wouldn't normally see or that you get opportunities to write stories that you necessarily wouldn't get because you know the ufc especially they have manicured the whole process the whole event week really carefully so that you kind of just you go where they want you to go you see what they want you to see you talk to who they want you to talk to and so does everybody else 
so there's not a whole lot new there. I mean, it's good, I think, for to get a little face time with some of the people, the, the, the managers, the coaches, um, and also the fighters. There's a lot of assorted people in the industry that are at those events, and it's good to be able to sit down and talk to some of them, and it'll put ideas in your head for other stories. But it's not absolutely essential. I mean, one of the things that I've tried to focus a little more on doing in the last couple of years is going to gyms um, when you know there's not like a big fight coming up and just spending a couple of days there. And you get a different kind of reaction from people when they don't – they're not cutting weight. They're not worried about fighting on Saturday night. They're just – it's just Tuesday for them. Yeah. And uh, you know they're a little more open or you, you hear a little bit different stories. Um, that kind of thing is, is a lot more interesting for me at least as a – tool for bigger writing projects and the fighters actually being open to talk seems not entirely unique to mma but more unique than other sports i mean you look at the nba like you're not going to get kind of the the quotes that you would get from a you know from a steph curry or lebron james about you know their issues with their pay or like here's exactly what i do for injury per injury prevention that you might get about you know from a fighter because it's it just there's different levels to it so are mma fighters more open and maybe even more interesting than other sports figures in your mind of course you've been at this job for a long time you i don't think you've done nba or nfl coverage but just kind of from what you've seen anecdotally are my fighters open to talk about more things well you know fighters are all all different types kind of end up in this sport um but i think that you know one of the things i remember greg jackson saying once was that he thought that fighting was a place for misfits of one stripe or another uh, people who kind of didn't fit in other places and you do see some of that. Um, you, you, that makes some of them more interesting. It makes others of them less interesting. Um, but I think just as, in terms of access, I mean, like you, you can't just call up like the coach of the Seahawks and be like, hey, um, can I come spend a few days at training camp um, and just have him be like, hey, sure. Yeah, come on by. I mean, there's a whole apparatus uh, that that stuff has to get th- cleared through. And in MMA, just a lot of the barriers to entry at all levels are really different. I mean, just in terms of you want to be a fighter, get somebody to give you a fight and you can get in there and do it. You want to be a coach, get somebody to call you their trainer and and get a pair of mitts to hold and you're a trainer. You know, you want to be a manager, get somebody to say that that's my manager. You know, there's no like, it's not like a test that you have to pass uh, like in the NFL or anything. So, uh, and it's true too of of journalists, especially uh, the internet has made that uh, a completely different kind of world and the rise of, MMA has kind of mirrored the rise of internet media. And so, you know, if you can just get on there and start doing it, then the next thing you know, you're doing it. So and I think you see that uh, reflected in all corners of the MMA world. And UFC press conferences have changed. I'm, before it was kind of everyone on the dais. Now it's more individualized. But like, I mean, I will stay up after events because I want to hear what these people say because they'll say shit that, you know, after a Cavaliers win, I I don't really care to hear what Kyrie Irving or LeBron James is say because they're they they're media trained so heavily that it's just kind of the, the same thing over and over. And I, every time I listen to a UFC press conference, I'm like, I never expected to hear that. Or fights not announced, but you you get some ideas of where some fights are going to go. Did you when you're going to these gyms or hanging out with these fighters? Do you have are there any like crystallizing moments or specific moments that stick out of like? Huh, I never thought a fighter would actually be that open with me, or I didn't think, you know, I would get this level of access. Have you ever had kind of a crazy, like, wow, how did this happen while you're at these gyms? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of those sometimes, especially because it, when they're training, if you're in there in the gym um, and you're in there, you know, on like a hard sparring day, for instance, uh, and you'll see emotions running pretty high, uh, especially depending on where different people are in their training camps. Uh, and, 
you know, they're they're in there, they're fighting with each other, they're, they're teammates and everything, but they're still punching each other in the head. And so people can get worked up. Uh, you know, you catch somebody right after a session like that, and it's going to be different than if you catch them in one of the series of like 10 minute phone calls that the UFC sets up uh, two weeks before the fight. Um, I also, you know, I remember once I was at uh, AKA in uh, San Jose, and they started having kind of an impromptu team meeting about like a contentious subject, and got heated at each other, and just kind of forgot I was there for a long time. And finally, I think it was uh, Crazy Bob Cook kind of looked over and saw me and, and walked over there and was just like, hey, could you maybe give us a few minutes here? And I thought, yeah, sure. I was waiting for you to say that 10 minutes ago. Um, you know, that kind of stuff that you get to see that otherwise uh, is com- would be completely closed off to you. And some of it is just a matter of just showing up and being there. Is Do you ever feel weird if you just watch like a crazy sparring session, which some of these people, some of these fighters, like they treat sparring like fighting where concussions might happen. Do you take a step back and try not to interview or talk to one of them after a concussion just in case they might say something that they'll regret? Is there kind of a responsibility that you all feel as a journalist for talking to people when they're completely of a clear mind, which is hard in this sport because people are punching each other? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, you wouldn't want to kind of take advantage of somebody in that situation. Um, and most of the time, you know, I haven't really seen too many bad things happen to people in sparring. It'll get, you know, kind of heated guys will get worked up in it, but I, I haven't really seen, like, I haven't seen anybody get knocked out in sparring or anything, but I have definitely been there for sparring matches where you feel like, man, I should be paying for a ticket. It's kind of unfair that I get to sit here, you know, sitting there and watching like Brendan Schaub and Shane Carwin, uh, spar each other at the old grudge gym. You're just like, wow, this is this is a lot of fun to watch. This is something that if they put it on TV, I would definitely make sure I was in my seat for it. Um, or watching, you know, the Diaz brothers go against a series of boxers over and over and over again until they just wear them all out. Um, that kind of stuff. Uh, while it's happening, and you realize this is something special. Yeah, like outside of a UFC setting, seems like the best chance for an MMA journalist because. You know, the UFC is weird. Like, I, I mean, plain question. Does the UFC see MMA journalists as an extension of PR to a certain extent where more than they're actual independent people? Like, how often do you get scolded for calling the UFC out on issues of pay, drug testing, shallow cards? Uh, free agency is a big issue right now with Bellator growing where if you talk about that, maybe at the wrong time, they get frustrated with you. I mean, I mean if you look at just this weekend, uh, the female fighter uh, Pearl Gonzalez at UFC 210, who was told right after she weighed in, that she couldn't fight due to having breast implants in, in New York. And the media reported on it, which it was a true thing, and then right after Dana White saying it's false, don't listen to anyone, only listen to the UFC, only listen to me, in a very Trump way. Uh, she did end up fighting, but that report was true. So is it, are you kind of always on thin ice as an MMA journalist with how just kind of temperamental and emotional the, the bigwigs at the UFC can be? You know, I'm glad you mentioned Trump because it's it's interesting. Uh, I've talked with some of my colleagues uh, about it, about how there's you're almost kind of glad to see what people like, you know, media and like the White House press corps and stuff has to deal with with Donald Trump because you feel like, yep, this seems familiar. We've been <laughs> we've been dealing with a guy like this for, for a while. And obviously they're doing it on a much bigger stage and much bigger scale. And it matters a whole lot more. Uh, but it is familiar at times that that kind of like having somebody stand up there and say the nature of reality depends on what I say it does. Um, this is not true until I say it's true. And you're like, no, that's not how truth works. Uh, <laughs> and just, there's plenty of opportunities where, you know, the USC, it's a fight promoter, a fight promoter will lie to you, 
if they think it's in their best interest and they think that they can get away with it. So, uh, yeah, it, it is, it's weird, but I feel like a lot of us have gotten used to it. And in a way, I feel like it's gotten a little bit better over time just because, um, and especially as a result of the, the sale, it feels a little bit less now like the entire sport is at the whim of a couple powerful people. Um, there are still times when you feel that way, but it, it's moving away from that. And especially, you know, after the sale, I've had conversations with both people at WME, IMG, and you get a very different feel from them that they, uh, they see media a little differently. They kind of know what, how that game works and how, what everybody's role is and that, you know, your role might always not be what they would like it to be. And that's fine. And they don't take it personally. Uh, and at times, you know, not just from the UFC, from other fight promoters, you don't see that. And I, you know, you can look at quotes in the past from Dana White where you realize, okay, he definitely did think that, think of the media as a PR arm. Why are they talking about this when there's a fight to sell this weekend? Uh, and even fans kind of get caught up in that at times. Yeah. And you, know, you, you have to t- take a step back and realize, yeah, that's what the promoter wants. The promoter wants to sell tickets and pay-per-views and make money, but that's not the media's job. Um, and people do forget that sometimes, kind of to a surprising extent. It, it's really weird because sometimes after a really successful event, uh, Dana White will at a press conference like thank the media in a way as if like we did a great job, we sold all this, thank you media. Instead of you know, it's it's the media is not really about being thanked for reporting on this stuff. And you are more of a columnist than a news reporter, but I mean, if you were an MMA news reporter in that way, would you have to like would you feel uncomfortable reporting Dana White's words directly because so often it's promotional speak so often there's the joke out there that whenever he says like oh this fight's not going to happen it's confirmation the fight's absolutely going to happen is it kind of weird reporting news in an industry where you never really know what the truth is well i think it's just important to make sure that you communicate that aspect to people because some of the times you know sometimes you'll see uh, a report that says something about like oh this fight was the most watched on fight pass in this time. And you don't know that that's what you, all you can really say is the UFC says that's the most watched fight on fight pass. Um, Cause there's no way of independently confirming that stuff. Uh, and, you know, I think that that's an important thing to, to get across. It's not like you should convey to your readers that Dana White is not to be listened to uh, at, at any time, but it is important that you convey to him like, this is what this one guy says. Um, and, you know, they can decide the same way they would about what anybody else says, uh, if that makes it true or not. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we did talk earlier about your visits to different gyms and getting to know these people. So for you, how difficult is it to separate your emotions from fighters who you might have spent long days with the gym, you might have met their families, they might have told you kind of personal details about their camp that maybe they, other people wouldn't get. I mean, let's say you spend a full week at Team Alpha Male with Cody Garbrandt and you 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 meet his family you understand him in a way you might have not otherwise and then you see him just kind of knocked out cold by TJ Dillashaw in his next fight is it difficult to remove your emotions from these situations and is it hard not to root for certain fighters because you joke on your podcast oh this guy's my guy or he's this you know this guy but do you ever kind of feel like you know I really hope this guy wins when maybe that's not how you should be looking at it as someone who covers the sport yeah, to some extent, I think that that's inevitable when you get to know some of them and you, you know, sometimes getting to know them makes you like them more and sometimes it has the opposite effect. Um, <laughs> the but, Matt Hughes and, and it is, fighter effect. Right, yeah, that's that's a good famous example of it. Uh, it is like, one thing that's hard to remember but also really important to remember is, especially when you spend, uh, you know, one-on-one time a lot with certain fighters is that 
the fighters aren't your friends and that when you sit down to write this story, you're not writing it for them. And I think that sometimes it's easy for people to forget that. And I can see how you would, you know, when you sit down to write it, you know, the guy's going to read it or, you know, most of the time he reads it. And, uh, you know, it's hard not to think, what is he going to think in it? But you also have to completely put that out of your mind that, you know, your job is to sit there and tell the truth as you see it. And, you know, few people I think would really like unanimously across the board, seeing the truth told about them. Um, you know, myself included, that's, it's going to be an uncomfortable thing, but that's kind of the job. And so you have to not think about how they're going to react to it, but it's also difficult, uh, in MMA because it's not like you only see these people once, you know, it's the, it's a small pool and everybody's going to come around again and you're, you know, whatever you're right now, you have to be prepared that they might hold it against you later. And that happens sometimes, but that's just how it has to be. In the same vein, now that we do have so much information about brain trauma, about concussions, uh, I mean, for me, football is a little bit harder to watch because of that. For you, is it more difficult to watch the UFC with a fully clean conscience? Because it's, I, for me, again, it's harder for me. I, if you look at an awesome knockout, it's still an awesome knockout. But the first thing I think is, oh, God, his head really hit against the canvas strongly as his head bounced and you know, how awful is that for his long-term health? What's this going to be like? Because this sport is so young and we haven't really seen some of the, the older crowd respond to all these years of punishment. So is it harder and harder to kind of stand up and cheer when someone gets brutally KO'd or when a quote-unquote war goes on in the octagon? You know, I don't know if it's harder for the, like, the individual hits or the individual knockouts. One of the things that's harder, I guess, is when you see some of the older fighters and sometimes who are not even chronologically that old uh, and you see them walking around and you just, you, you can see the, the damage that has piled up just by watching them walk across a room sometimes. Um, I remember seeing like uh, big nog and Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira in Brazil. And when he was fighting Brendan Shaw, he won actually. And he admitted he'd kind of rushed back from surgery because he wanted to fight in Rio. And when you saw him walk around, you thought, Oh, this is a terrible idea. Like you're going to get murdered. You you can barely make it up the steps here. Uh, and then he, he went out there and won. Or you know, I remember seeing Jeff Monson. Kind of we were, we had rooms near each other when he fought Daniel Cormier at a Strike Force event. You know, back before Cormier was uh, as big as he is now. And just watching him walk back to his room, you thought, it's, "How is it possible this guy is going to fight in a, against a former Olympian?" in a professional cage fight a couple days from now. Like he doesn't look like you wouldn't pick him first for your ultimate Frisbee team, the way he's walking <laughs> right now. Um, that I think is a little harder to watch because especially when you know, some of these guys are still doing it because it's the only way they have to make a living and it's not a great living. Uh, and, but I also think that's one of the things that reminds you that one thing journalists should be doing in this sport is shining a line, a light on issues like fighter pay and uh, you know, ongoing healthcare for fighters because uh, you know, at least with the NFL, yeah, there's a lot of human wreckage involved in it, but they're compensated really well, um, not just now, but in the future. You know, they have a collective bargaining agreement that takes pretty good care of them, and fighters don't have that, uh, and yet the, the wreckage is still there. So that's one of the things that I think it's important for journalists not to lose sight of and to make sure that that's still an issue that we kind of force fans to think about at least every now and then. That's the crazy part from the outside looking in, especially people who don't follow the sport that closely, is you would assume people who go into a cage and just beat the shit out of each other would get paid well to do so. But, I mean, so often it's not the case. I mean, just recently, the kind of minimum wage was raised to 10 and 10. And if you lose a fight, your first fight in the UFC, $10,000, that's probably not going to cover your camp and the tr 
very often like flying out other coaches with you. Like it's, there are these older fighters who have to keep doing this because they did not get enough money to live you know, really comfortably in the future or comfortably at all. Do you see, I, mean, we, I, I do think uh, MMA journalists do a good job of shining a light on that and the kind of wage issue there. Do you ever see a day where that actually changes and fighters get paid what they deserve? Because right now, we're guessing we don't know the UFC's actual like uh, income breakdown, but it seems like 10 or 20% is charitable to say it goes to the fighters. Like, Do you think we'll see a shift in that? Yeah, I mean, I think that you can expect a some kind of a shift in that, but only when fighters really can force the issue, either through an association or like something you see going on right now with the ongoing antitrust lawsuit. Um, you know, it's, you're not going to sit around and wait for the promoters to decide that they should give away more money. Um, that's not, and the, honestly, that seems obvious. But I talked to a surprising number of fighters who think like. You know, they, they buy into that logic like, well, hey, I should keep my head down now, um, go out there, put on great fights, and the money will come. It will just sort of arrive, uh, and I don't need to worry about trying to get it all on paper, that yeah. that's, that's what's going to happen for me. It'll just kind of, I'll do the right thing, and then they'll do the right thing. Um, and that doesn't always happen, and you see fighters kind of late in their careers who realize that that doesn't happen, and it's hard for them not to be angry and, and a little bit bitter about it. But by then, people don't want to listen to them. Uh, they just say, oh, you're, you're angry because... You know, your career didn't work out because you're a UFC washout, uh, and you see that kind of life cycle repeated over and over again. Um, but I think, you know, if they had an association or they had some kind of mechanism to really flex their collective power, then they could change a lot of that. And I, and I think it's not just a matter of getting more cash right now, getting bigger checks and getting a bigger split, although that's definitely going to be part of it. Um, but getting the promoter to pay into some kind of apparatus to help take care of the fighters uh, when the total bill for all the stuff they're doing to their body eventually comes due. Yeah, it's, I mean, when you hear fighters say, I could make more money doing real estate, or I'm flying to Brazil for a fight where in the end I'm actually going to lose money, it's just, it's insane. It's so crazy right now. Uh, you did mention earlier that uh, WME IMG bought the UFC, and it, things haven't drastically changed yet, but there is some subtle differences in terms of the matchmaking. Uh, could you ever see WME change the UFC so much that you might lose the desire to cover it or the passion to watch it? Are you along for the ride no matter what because of the fighters, just because you love MMA? Or are you concerned that maybe this whole thing is going so far entertainment-focused where a GSP bizbing is just the tip of the iceberg that you're like, I'm, I'm out. I really don't want this to be half professional wrestling, half real fighting. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard for me to feel like... I would just disagree with the UFC's business moves so much that I would lose interest in the actual sport element of it. Because to me, that's always been one of the surprisingly and refreshingly great things about MMA is that for all the other crap that goes on, and there's a ton of it, you know, before and after the fights and all the the mechanisms that make it work, um, once everybody gets in the cage and they lock the door, then it's still the sport that the the truth always finds a way to come out in there. You know, you look at some examples of fighters that where the UFC has kind of decided, okay, this is going to be somebody. We're going to push this person. Uh, we're really going to hype them up. And eventually, if they can't back that up themselves physically in the cage, it'll show up. You know, you can you can only get away with that for so long. You can only perpetrate that lie for so long. And that's one of the things I really like about the sport. Uh, and it's hard to see how that would change. Um, you know, as long as the the action of it still remains, you know, unscripted and, and uh, honest, 
um, that's where my interest lies most of the time. Uh, and lastly, you do, as I mentioned earlier, you, you co-host the co-main event podcast with Chad Dundas. Uh, is that one of the things you look forward to most in your week sitting down and recording that? And did you ever expect it to take off the way that it did? Because, you know, talking to Chad, he said, even if it's not the most massive audience in the world, the actual fervor for it and the, the shit-eating wild men who email in, which is me, and other people who, you know, talk about on Twitter. Is that maybe even what you get recognized for the most at this point? It's the worst part of my week, <laughs> um, going to Chad's house and spending an hour and a half at his company to record the podcast. It's every every single week I sit out there in my car before I go inside, and I think, you know what? Just start up the engine, man, and just drive. Just drive <laughs> to anywhere, and don't go in there. Don't do this one more day. Uh, and for some reason I get out of the car and I walk in there. Um, but seriously, it is kind of surprising. You know, what's surprising to me is how many times, how often I meet people like in person or people I talk to on Twitter who will be like, you know, I don't really watch that much MMA anymore. I watch it here and there and there's a big fight, but I still, I, I never miss a CME. And I think, how is that possible? How is it entertaining to listen to us if you haven't? Uh, watch the event that we're talking about because we don't do a whole lot of work to try to make sure we fill you in on exactly what happens. There's not a whole lot of plot summary uh, each week. I don't know how it's still entertaining for those people to listen, but it is, and I guess that's a good thing. D- did you listen to many podcasts before you did yours? Because the story from what I heard was you guys had just always talked about MMA after events and before events, and then one of your wives said, like, why, why aren't you just recording this, you idiots? Uh, so was it a podcast like, oh, I, I guess we'll do this, but I haven't really had an experience, or have you listened to a lot previously and you're like, oh, I think I could do this? I mean, I think we both listen to our share of podcasts. Uh, I really listened a lot to This American Life uh, and Hardcore History. Those are, those are kind of my jams. Um, definitely not a whole lot of sports podcasts, uh, but yeah, it was, I, it was my wife who was just like, you guys should start a podcast uh, and kind of nudged us in that direction enough that finally we did it. Um, and yeah, I mean, anything we know about podcasting, we kind of learned on the fly. Uh, and we, it's, I would like for people to continue thinking that it's a whole lot of work for us and that we put in a lot of really diligent effort. Um, but we don't. It's a very strict script building from week to week. You make sure everything's on point. There's cues. There's a lot of editing. I, I could only imagine. Yeah. This is the last thing I promise. Is there, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. If you had to kind of name one prevailing storyline that you think might kind of take over MMA this year, because free agency has been a big thing for a while, the the Connor Floyd thing is, you know, somehow probably maybe happening. Is there that or anything else that sticks out of like, I think this is going to kind of define MMA in 2017? Well, I think that the... The coming conflict that seems like it could be the most important one is you see more and more fighters saying, I want more money, I want to fight out this contract and see what there is out there for me. And at the same time, you see uh, a UFC under new ownership that is really focused on cost-cutting and making the operation as lean as possible, which is pretty normal for somebody after they've just, you know, they bought it for a huge price tag. Um and those two things are kind of incompatible. Uh, it used to be that you would not really see fighters fighting out their contract very often. And when you did, it was a huge deal. Uh, the UFC would come to you when you still had one or two fights left on the deal and say, like, okay, we want you to sign a new one. And almost all the time, people said, all right, let's go ahead and do that. And they, it was a noteworthy thing when somebody was like, I'm not going to sign a new deal until I complete this deal. And it was seen as like, okay, they're really stepping out on the ledge there, uh, risking 
you know, being worthless if they lose. And sometimes it would seem like when you looked at the matchups, the UFC gave them tougher matchups when they uh, wouldn't sign a deal before their current contract was up. And it's become commonplace enough. You just see enough people doing it that the attitude around it has changed. You just It's less of a big deal to hear, oh, this is the last fight on Gegard Mousasi's contract. Or like, oh, Jacare's contract is up after this. And a few years ago, that was completely different. You didn't see that happening as much. Um, and so, you know, with Bellator stepping up and willing to pay to snatch a couple of these guys, uh, the, the free agency market is heating up at least a little bit. Guys are, are getting a little bit more savvy about um, needing to get their money now and get a good contract that they like now. And all at the same time, when WME is trying to trim the fat, uh, it'll be interesting to see what gives there because those two forces are kind of uh, going head to head right now. It actually makes the fights more interesting to me because, like, the Fox card this weekend. Because now I know that Jacare's last fight in his deal against is against Robert Whitaker. I'm like, well, I want to see how this plays out. Is he going to get paid, or is he going to, you know, win this and then just move off to Bellator and do crazy stuff over there in their non-existent middleweight division? Like, it does add another element that fascinates me. Uh, ben, just to give you a chance to promote yourself, where can people find you on social media? And is there anything you're working on now that you can talk about? Any sort of long-form lifestyle pieces? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at uh, twitter.com, BenFolksMMA, um, and that you could, I have it pinned up there now. The last big piece I did, I just did one on Pride after the 10-year the anniversary of the last Pride event was on Saturday, uh, so I took a long time, talked to a bunch of different Pride people, and uh, have a big story up there, so um, if you want to read something I wrote, please go read that. It took me a long time. It was a pain in the ass, um, so give that one some clicks. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really do appreciate it. I've been, you know, reading your stuff from way back when and all the different sites you've been on. And uh, it's it's weird actually talking to you in person after I literally just finished the, yesterday's episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. So this kind of an odd shift right now. But I super appreciate it. I'm looking forward to more of your work. Great. Well, thanks. My pleasure. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. And hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099. <laughs>